quick content warning. This podcast includes adult language and deals with difficult themes that include sexual assault. There's also a segment devoted to violent and sexually charged hate speech directed at women via the internet. And another thing, we are approaching the part of the story that concerns allegations that multiple survivors made regarding the sexual misconduct of Harry Knowles. At the request, we've chosen to alter each person's name unless they instructed us to do otherwise. Now let's start the show. Hey, um, uh, me and the uh, gang were wondering What was that? Can you blush? Bobby. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I get it. I see now. You've been training for two years to take me out. And now here I am. <sighs> You're listening to a scene from the Wesley Snipes film Blade 2. Directed by Guillermo del Toro, when the film was released in 2002, many critics and viewers agreed the film was a rare example of a sequel that was as good if not better than the original film. But when most people mention the film today, almost no one discusses its quality. What they talk about instead is the review Harry Knowles wrote for the movie on Ain't It Cool News. In this review of Blade 2, Harry compares Guillermo's work on that film to the director performing cunnilingus on the audience in incredibly graphic detail. Beyond that, Harry also claims the filmmaker is not only a personal friend, but surrogate brother. He says as much in the opening paragraph. For me to review Blade 2, it is a major conflict of interest because Guillermo del Toro and I are brothers. His father says so, his wife believes this. Guillermo and I are just the best of friends. But when El Gordo calls my father dad, and I call his dad pops, and we delve into hours of passionate discussion, about H.P. Lovecraft, Goya, Steve Ditko action, the movies, and pussy, we can all lose track of time on planet Earth. Whether or not Guillermo actually saw Harry Knowles as a brother or even just a friend is unknown. What is known is that Harry's review has attained such notoriety, it's impossible to think of Del Toro's film Blade II without also considering the review that Harry Knowles wrote for the film on Ain't It Cool News. Guillermo saw the best version of Harry. That's Drew McWeeny, a.k.a. Moriarty. Before he left Ain't It Cool News in 2008, Drew was Harry Knowles' greatest collaborator and some assumed best friend. He believes that the core of this friendship between Harry and Guillermo centered on a mutual passion that each of them had for both monsters and transgressive behavior. In fact, as much as people like to bag on Harry Knowles for his review of Blade II, it was inspired in some ways by the director's own intentions for the movie itself. My favorite story about Guillermo is when he was pitching Blade II. They were pitching to New Line and David Goyer brought him into the room and there was an executive on the film named Stokely Chafin. It was a younger executive and um, she was right below Bob, you know, Bob Shea at the studio. And so she, it was her job to basically yes or no this. And Guillermo gets to the description of the Reapers and the the reveal of the Reaper physiology. And he, and 
If you've ever heard Guillermo talk about monsters, there are a few people that love things with the fervent passion that he loves monsters and the icky, sticky, nasty nuts and bolts of monsters. So he's talking about the way the Reaper's mouths work. And then the mouth opens up like this, and the teeth come out like this, and there is a bottom jaw and a giant. It's like a fucking pussy with teeth, and then the blood comes out. And he's describing this insane detail. And Stokely Chafin looks at him and goes, um, I, um, and then eyes roll up in her head, passes out, and faints out of the chair. And they're all like, oh my God, <laughs> you killed Stokely. I also think you got the job. And I just want to chime in very quickly and say that Guillermo has shared variations of the story with multiple people. But the one person who has yet to comment on the matter is producer Stokely Chafin. Stokely, uh, if you're listening to this podcast and hear that we got any of the details wrong whatsoever, just shoot me a message and let me know what's up. Anyway, it was a love of movies and of monsters that united Guillermo with Harry Knowles on stage at the Paramount Theater in downtown Austin, Texas on the evening of March 14th, 2011. This is the same day as the 15th anniversary panel for Ain't It Cool News at South by Southwest, which we talked about in the previous episode of the show. Sitting in his wheelchair with his trademark neck beard and Hawaiian shirt, Harry is basking in both the stage lights and adulation of the celebrity filmmaker and supposed friend. All the while, Guillermo introduces Harry to the crowd. For me, there have been two forces in the filmic universe that have been benign forces. One was for and the other was It's difficult to hear Guillermo, so I'll repeat what he said. The director said, quote, to me, there have been two forces in the filmic universe that have been benign forces. One is Forry Ackerman, and the other was Harry Knowles, end quote. Very quickly, when Guillermo mentioned Forry Ackerman, he was referring to the nickname of Forrest J. Ackerman, the publisher of the now out-of-print fan magazine Famous Monsters of Filmland, which launched in 1958. After this introduction, Harry and Guillermo were set up to introduce a secret film. And because of Harry's track record of landing premieres of major movies, including the Lord of the Rings trilogy, The Passion of the Christ, and even James Cameron's Avatar, speculation in and around Austin, Texas, of what Harry would be playing at this secret screening was running wild. Even The Hollywood Reporter got in on this guessing game. They speculated that among the films Harry might screen could include an unfinished work print of Super 8, J.J. Abrams' homage to Steven Spielberg, that was slated to be released that summer. The trade publication also shared the most popular theories, that Harry Knowles would be hosting the premiere of that year's big Marvel films, Thor or Captain America, The First Avenger. But the answer as to what movie Harry was actually playing would ultimately be a disappointment. And for Guillermo del Toro, the audience reaction would reveal something in real time that he didn't already know. That the clout and influence that Ain't It Cool News once claimed over the internet movie geek community it helped to create was slipping. According to Drew McWeeny, there was another thing that Guillermo was not yet aware of at this time. That beneath its giddy, allegedly benign movie fanboy veneer, there were aspects about Ain't It Cool News, as well as Harry Knowles himself, that were exploitive even insidious. I would imagine uh, 
there can't be many people that have more complicated feelings about Harry than him because I think he really truly loved Harry and when he met him I, I think found a, a brother and some kinship in him and I think the disappointment has been heartbreaking and profound and pretty deep on this episode of download the rise and fall of Harry Knowles and ain't it cool news we will finish the two-part story that chronicles the era that would shape the downfall of this once fearsome if not revered internet movie news website the revelation of a friendship that defined many things that were terrible about ain't it cool news plus labor abuses as well as the alleged betrayal that led to Drew McQueenie's abrupt departure from Harry Knowles and his crew. And most importantly, we will dive into the toxic cesspool of white male nerd rage that in many ways gave Ain't It Cool News a life of its own. All of this and more, so let's get ready to dial up, log on, and download. Welcome. Episode 7, The Antisocial Network, Part 2. The quality that defines the greatest innovations of the internet most often center on the ability to meet a simple need or desire. What I mean by that is that when a tech startup meets the right need in just the right way, the results could lead to multi-billion dollar companies. Take Facebook, for example. A slightly fictionalized story about the creation of Facebook was presented in the David Fincher film, The Social Network. Written by Aaron Sorkin, the movie took many liberties in the way it depicted the life of Facebook creator Mark Zuckerberg. And on an editorial note, it's a testament to how good the movie is, as well as how many people hate Mark Zuckerberg, that almost everyone knows this, but doesn't seem to care. But one of the details The Social Network gets right is that when Facebook was initially launched, it was originally exclusive only to college campuses. During this one scene from the David Fincher film, we see the largely fictionalized Mark Zuckerberg and co-founder Eduardo Saverin, played respectively by Jesse Eisenberg and Andrew Garfield, discovering the simple need that would transform Facebook from a college hobby into a major part of the lives of 2.9 billion people every month. Shit, that looks good, that looks really good. It's clean and simple. No Disneyland, no live new girls to watch. What's your right? Relationship status. Interested in. This is what drives life in college. Are you having sex or aren't you? It's why people take certain classes and sit where they sit and do what they do when at some center, you know? That's what the Facebook is gonna be about. People are gonna log on because after all the cake and watermelon, there's a chance they're actually gonna, gonna get laid. Meet a girl. Yes. That is really good. And that was it. What do you mean? I was in college when Facebook initially launched, and I can tell you that the reason so many of my friends first signed up for Facebook was so they could bypass the once critical mystery that we all faced as to whether or not someone we liked was already dating somebody else. In fact, it's almost because of the website that the real-life question of relationship statuses no longer exists. Regardless of how most people think of it today, Almost no one can deny that Facebook changed not only the way we communicate about dating, but also art, politics, and culture. This brings us to Ain't It Cool News. Few people would ever use the words great or innovative to describe this website, especially since it hasn't been updated in any significant way since the late 90s. It's also all but certain that unlike Facebook, 
Ain't It Cool News will never become a billion dollar company. Regardless, there was one technological innovation that Ain't It Cool News brought to the table. And like the earliest version of Facebook, that innovation also arose from a drive to meet a simple desire. When users visited Ain't It Cool News to read the latest behind the scenes movie gossip and reviews, webmaster Harry Knowles wanted them to feel like they had entered a virtual comic book convention. To meet this simple need during what would be the final major redesign of his website, which took place in 1998, Harry had the firm he contracted to build his website add a brand new feature called TalkBack. Not to be confused with a forum or chat room, TalkBack was essentially a comment section that appeared at the bottom of each review or news item. A New York Times Magazine article states there were competing claims as to which website was the first to launch comment sections. They add that the most popular belief is that an online journaling site known as Open Diary introduced one shortly after its creator, a man named Bruce Abelson, launched the website on October 20th, 1998. Given the erasable nature of the internet, I would be reluctant to declare that Ain't It Cool News invented anything, let alone comment sections. At the same time, it would appear that Ain't It Cool News introduced talkbacks three months before the debut of Open Diary in late July of the same year. Through the talkback section, Ain't It Cool News might not have changed the way we talk about politics, and uh, certainly not dating, but its impact on the way people talk with complete strangers about movies can still be seen today. It was just a great forum. In my mind, it was like the original Twitter. The way it was laid out created this uh, space for good discussion. That's a person who now calls himself Couchboom. On the talkback section of Ain't It Cool News, Couchboom posted under the moniker Series 7, based on the 2001 low-budget thriller of the same name. Couchboom refused to share his real name with me. The same goes for his close friend and fellow former talkbacker who calls himself Danny, which is short for, and just bear with me now, Danny Glover's dick blood. You know, the funny thing about dick blood is that it was such a short-lived thing. I mean, this motherfucker shook the earth, but it was like a two-year period all in. We basically crashed the party and, and made sure on the way out, we shut it down. Maybe it sounds bizarre to hear Danny Glover's dick blood discuss his time on talkbacks at Ain't It Cool News in the same way you might expect to hear members of the Ramones talk about their first four albums. Noted, that's a totally fair thing to say. At the same time, you have to realize that the fame and notoriety of Danny Glover's dick blood went beyond Ain't It Cool News. His hot takes on movies somehow managed to transcend the internet. The greatest example of this would have to be this one moment on Late Night with Conan O'Brien. This episode featured comedian, writer, and filmmaker Judd Apatow and aired on NBC in 2008. Do they write nice things about you on the message board? Well, every once in a while people, you know, there's a little backlash just, you know, when you have a lot of movies at some point people have to turn on you. And then I, I read the other day on the internet, someone's like, Judd Apatow's movies are a fart to American culture. And it went on and on and on. And I felt bad, like I started feeling bad. And then I look who posted it and it said, Danny Glover's blood. <laughs> and then was that, now should I believe Danny Glover's blood? Should I? Does that invalidate his opinion? No. It shouldn't invalidate his entire opinion, but no. Maybe he was only joking, but Judd Apatow actually continued to grind this axe against Danny Glover's dick blood, who, 
for the love of God, we're just going to call Danny from now on. In the commentary track he recorded for Pineapple Express, the other voices you will hear include the film star Seth Rogen and Seth's co-writer Evan Goldberg. I read a whole line of stuff on the internet last night. I had a big night on the internet last night where someone was like, it's so stupid, you can't bite someone's ear off who doesn't have an ear anymore. <laughs> <laughs> that guy got us. Oh, dang. That must have been Danny Glover's dick blood. Exactly. <laughs> I love that you've given Danny Glover's dick blood all this press. <laughs> For Danny as well as his friend Couch Boom, Talkback was more than just a comment section or a message board on an internet movie news website. It was a canvas, a place where they could paint what to them was a masterpiece of discourse and mayhem. It was basically the local fucking pub where, where you, you know, hang out after a movie and, and sort of reflect upon the experience. You know, I, and I know that the, the, uh, the legacy is something of uh, similar to what Reddit is today, that kind of thing. In the early 2000s, when I first started checking it out, it was intelligent conversation in there. A lot of obscenity. I can vouch that there were a lot of obscenities. One thing to consider regarding talkbacks is that they were created nearly a decade before social media. It's because of this that the people who worked on the site were among the very first writers or content creators to get feedback from a horde of anonymous readers in real time. I think that Talkback and Ain't It Cool is one of those places where you place 4chan kind of came from, or, you know, uh, some Reddit, po you know, Reddit places. I think it kind of all started with Talkback. That's Alan Cerny, who used to write for Ain't It Cool News under the name Nordling. It's easy to take what Alan experienced for granted, especially since our present culture is drowning in anonymous feedback. However, for Alan, the sheer volume and initial magnitude of this negativity was jarring. People started pushing each other, insulting each other, talking smack about the writer of the article, talking smack about somebody who liked the movie, you know, talking shit all together, and then calling each other terrible, horrible names. And it just became overwhelming. Not everyone responded to this hostility in the same way. For instance, webmaster and site creator Harry Knowles seemed to be more than fine to roll with the punches. Talkbackers came at him for a variety of reasons. From attacks in response to his opinion of movies and accusations of being a sellout, to cruel jokes about his weight and even his disability. According to Couchboom, when users and Talkbacks got nasty with Harry, the webmaster almost never responded. You could, you could make fun of Harry Knowles. You could say the meanest shit possible about Harry Knowles and nothing happened. Steve Prokopi also took most of the anonymous negativity in stride. Writing for the site under the name Capone, he believed talkbacks and their users, which were referred to as talkbackers, were a good thing. They held Steve to task whenever he got a fact wrong in one of his articles or had an egregious typo. The most adamant editors of our work were the talkback people, and they would sometimes point out mistakes, you know, followed by, you fucking idiot. Um for making the mistake and then i go in and fix it i'm like oh my god thank god someone spotted that early and i just take the hit but but th they those people were uh they were horrible in some way and and essential in other ways so harry knowles might have conceived of talkbacks as a way to bring the types of conversations that geeks and fanboys had at comic book conventions to the internet but in reality what harry knowles truly achieved was much darker. Through talkbacks, Harry took the once hidden Atlantean digital cultures of IRC message boards, the primordial ooze where Ain't It Cool News came from, 
and brought them closer to the surface of the monetized, widely accessible internet. In science, when a deep sea creature from the abyss rises to the surface, the changes in water pressure, oxygen levels, and light cause it to fall apart and disintegrate. In science fiction, when a deep sea monster rises to the surface, it rampages. Former Ain't It Cool News writer C. Robert Cargill says the worst of the talkbackers on the site certainly did the latter. Well, I mean, talkback was one of the worst. We had a comment section that was essentially early 4chan. Uh, we had some of the worst trolls on the internet say awful things. You know, I occasionally will have people pull me aside and go, you don't know what it's like to be a film critic these days where you can be threatened with rape or murder. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I do. Cargill is the second person now to describe talkbacks as a prototype for 4chan. If you've never visited that site before, and I would recommend that you don't, I would describe 4chan as an online message board community that veered into such high levels of toxic masculinity that many of its community members would go on to be recruited into MRA, alt-right, and white supremacist organizations. 4chan was also instrumental in developing the memes and discourse that helped to elect Donald Trump into presidential office in 2016. The site was also the birthplace for QAnon, a bizarre blend of conspiracy theory and cult of misinformation that inspired many people to partake in the United States Capitol attack on January 6, 2021. This subject matter was explored brilliantly in a book titled It Came From Something Awful by author Dale Barron. Interesting note, I actually spoke to Dale Barron, who lives in Washington, D.C., the day before the insurgency. Uh, yeah, today and tomorrow are going to be totally nuts. Yeah. You know, how do you think tomorrow's going to go? Do you think it's going to be a violent revolt? Um, I, I don't think that's going to happen. I think D.C. is probably going to be just like the other days when D.C. has far-right protests. I don't think I'm going to go down and see it this time, but <laughs> yeah, I don't, I, I don't think it'll be that, but. As we all know now, Dale was wrong, seriously wrong. <laughs> the following day, five people would die and more than 130 Capitol police officers would be injured as part of this insurgency, led in some part by people who clearly look like they sprung from the fountain of mutagen that is toxic internet comment sections and message boards. When describing what the white men who visited 4chan or the talkbacks were seeking from these online spaces, Dale locks onto a peculiar word. That word also sums up what the movie geeks wanted from the kinds of genre movies Ain't It Cool News excelled at promoting. Escapism. The internet is also a way to kind of dump your frustrations. So it turns out that a lot of frustrated men are sitting in escapism on the internet. Yeah, that just uh, certainly contributes to the problem. A writer and sequential artist, Dale was a longtime user of 4chan and its predecessor, a website called somethingawful.com. It took Dale a long time to realize this, but the problem with the escapism that a lot of men found on the internet from the late 90s onward is that it involved misogyny and the online harassment and abuse of women. The internet was like very male, very nerdy, very misogynistic. That was sort of what it was defined by. I remember reading accounts of like women in the 90s being sort of cyberbullied off where they said, okay, well, I was a member of this community until it just got too much, 
turns out if people are anonymous, if they're, if they're allowed to sort of take away their identity, that they end up acting worse a lot of the time. <laughs> but that, that, that experiment in anonymity turned very dark. I don't think it was ever as bad as 4chan or something awful in this regard, but things certainly got dark within the talkbacks of Ain't It Cool News. For as virulent as talkbackers could be with Harry, they were far worse to the women writers at the site, who experienced a full spectrum of misogyny on a routine basis. This misogyny ranged from sexist quips and jokes about why these women had no business writing about movies, to comments about how talkbackers would masturbate while reading their reviews. Rebecca Elliott, who wrote for Ain't It Cool News under the name Annette Kellerman, says talkbacks were the digital equivalent to being catcalled on the sidewalk during the daily commute to work. I remember whenever Harry told me he was going to add a comment section to the site, and then talkback was a thing. And I remember thinking, oh, that's so cool at first, and then realized, oh, every freaking first comment of every article ever is just going to say something about how I should be barefoot in the kitchen instead of writing about film, that sort of thing. The only way Rebecca was able to continue writing for Ain't It Cool News to this very day was to avoid reading anything that talkbackers wrote altogether. Because it's just so ugly and I just don't feel like I even really need to expend my energy on that as much as I want to defend things sometimes or as much as I want to clear the air or it's just not even worth me getting my feelings hurt or getting like worked up about it but um oh yeah the <laughs> it's a toxic cesspool of misogyny yes for Rebecca's fellow ain't it cool writer Emily Von Steele aka Hororella the toxicity and sheer magnitude of hate directed at her was so vile that it wasn't enough to simply avoid the talkback section at the bottom of her articles. Emily was part of a second wave of writers who started working for the site during the 2000s. And because much of the articles she wrote concerned scary movies, it seemed as though her work attracted comments that were extremely horrifying and at times even violent. I just tried to stay out of it as much as I could. But the thing was like, Knowing that it was out there, it affected my perception of it. Like when I was, um, you know, in the portal and writing stuff up, as soon as I hit publish, it's like my computer opened a big eyeball staring back at me from the entirety of the internet. And they could just like, you know, see me sitting there in front of my computer and just hating the ever loving crap out of me. And I could sense that and I could feel that. So like once my piece was published, I didn't even want to open it back up again because I could feel the eyes on me. My life is a nightmare. The struggle of being female is that you're constantly objectified, discredited for anything you do because you're female. Just because you're a girl gives men the right to grope you, do what they want. A lot of guys don't understand that most forms of abuse are perpetuated by people that you trust. You are now listening to a trailer clip from the movie Felt, an independent horror drama co-written and starring artist Amy Everson. This film is about a woman who is clearly haunted by a past that involves sexual assault in some way the movie never fully discloses. Amy's character also copes with the routine misogyny that she must endure on a daily basis via a wardrobe of handmade bodysuits complete with fully detailed genitalia that she crafted out of both yarn and felt. Yeah, people's response to the film because a lot of people come up and share with me like this spoke to me because of my 
personal experience and it's just like uh i'm sorry uh, but yeah at the same time i'm glad that you felt that it spoke to you i i never imagined that it would have that kind of impact the process of it was just me wanting to express some of my pain in 2014 amy premiered felt during fantastic fest a genre film festival in Austin, Texas, that was co-founded by Harry Knowles. Right now, I just want to take a quick moment to say that while Felt probably isn't for everyone, I love the film for its singular vision and tone. Emily, who was in attendance during the premiere screening at Fantastic Fest, had many of the same feelings. This movie spoke to her in such a way she could not wait to write about it. The only problem was that the online venue where Emily was supposed to review the film was ain't it cool news. And I remember in my headline, I used the word feminist. <laughs> and I, like, I just, I wrote it and I'm like, this is exactly what I want to say. And this is the exactly what I want to do with it because this is a piece I feel very strongly about. I think it's really important. But like, I sat there on my couch with my laptop in front of me and I just, I could not hit publish because I knew as soon as I did, the feminist part of it was just going to like start blinking out to the internet and they were going to come for me with their knives and pitchforks. Emily's review of Felt positions the film as a response to modern rape culture. And as soon as the review went live, many talkbackers did come at her with knives out and pitchforks. Here are excerpts from those responses to Emily's review. And a quick content warning, once you hear some of them, you're probably going to understand why Emily had no interest in reading the comments section of her work. Horrorella, I'm really trying to like you. That's why I click on your articles, but I give up. You suck, and I will no longer click on your stuff. Pack up your rape culture and take a hike. Seriously, though, I would rather take a cheese grater to my dickhead than watch two minutes of that movie. Rape culture? What the hell are you talking about? Rape is an intellectual achievement of a collective society? Keep using nutty phrases like that, and you're going to lose a lot of credibility with normal thinking people. And forum members. I just want to give a shout out to that last commenter for indicating that there's a difference between normal thinking people and forum members. Anyway... For the men who wrote these comments in 2014, as well as a lot of men who are hearing them today, these comments are the status quo of internet discourse. They represent what to them should be considered normal in terms of the way we talk to each other about movies on the internet. But for Emily, they felt like abuse. Fortunately, she never read any of them. So as soon as I hit go and I sent it out into the ether, I'm like, okay, husband, let's go to lunch because I don't want to be here in front of my computer anymore. <laughs> I know, so it's there's terrible. A lot, there's a lot to unpack there. I know. <laughs> First off, you're talking about the eyes opening and watching you and seeing you. That sounds like a very Lovecraftian description. Right? <laughs> the you internet know. is actually one of the old ones. A lot of the things that I have discovered about myself between then and now, coupled with the way our culture and specifically internet culture has changed between then and now, um, I think if that happened today, I would feel a lot more comfortable and bolstered to ask for that kind of support. But back then, it was just kind of assumed that 
you know, the internet is a shit place. The talkbacks are a shit place. It's just kind of the way it is. And we all just kind of do our best to maneuver within it. In this time that Emily and Rebecca wrote for the site, Ain't It Cool News did nothing to protect them from this uniform hate speech. Some former writers and editors have even tried to deny culpability in this regard. They said the women writers at the site could have scanned these hateful messages and deleted them themselves. The truth is, however, that Ain't It Cool News had the power to respond in a broader, more meaningful way. I know this because when Drew McWeeny wrote for Ain't It Cool News, he was constantly blocking talkbackers who would attempt to insult him in the comments section. Danny says this was something Drew did with swift impunity. His banhammer flexed. Oh my, that motherfucker, that was the first time he ever felt power. He was strutting around there with a fucking hard dick all day. Anybody crossed him, anybody said the wrong thing in one of his threads, instantly banned. We used to joke around, if you wanted to guarantee your own demise, go talk shit straight to Drew in his own thread. And, and you were, your IP was permanently banned within seconds. You know, it was, it was much more locked down back then. It was like, okay, I'm fucked, I'm out of here. The fact that Ain't It Cool News allowed Drew to go to such lengths to protect himself while doing absolutely nothing to protect their women writers feels suspect to say the least. That's a labor issue, full stop, 100%. That's Whitney Phillips, a professor from Syracuse University and writer of the book, This Is Why We Can't Have Nice Things, mapping the relationship between online trolling and mainstream culture. Whitney adds that the inability, or perhaps unwillingness, to address these issues in many websites speaks volumes about their creators. If you are a white dude and you mostly spend your time with other white dudes, it is very unlikely that you would even think about harassment in these terms because it's not gonna happen to you. And again, that doesn't mean that you like harassment. It doesn't mean that you harbor hate in your heart. That's not the issue. That's not the question. That's not the point. It's just not on your radar. The fact that the leadership of Ain't It Cool News was uniformly white and male certainly contributed to this blind spot in terms of what the women who worked for the site had to put up with in order to do their work. But perhaps the greatest insight as to why Harry was reluctant to shut down or seriously moderate his talkbacks comes from a man who is an actual ninja. And I'm only half joking here. It's like, you know, I, I really did start training the, the martial artist Tagakuryu ninjutsu I started training in 1999 with a guy that was uh, had been in um, the Q course for special special forces. He was somebody that I grew up with. An aspiring film critic, Mark was looking for an angle that would enable him to be a contributor for the website. Then his wife had an idea. She was like, "Well, hey, you have all this these years that you spent doing martial arts, and you love martial arts movies." She was like, "Maybe that's your angle. Maybe that's what you talk about that nobody else is really talking about, especially from that perspective." So Mark reviewed the 2011 film Shaolin, a martial arts drama starring Andy Lau that never got a wide theatrical release here in the United States. When Mark emailed this review to Harry, he detailed some of his martial arts experience and asked Harry to assign him a code name. And then at the end, I was like, if you have pointers for me on how I could write better or, you know, think there's a, a better place for me to submit, just let me know. And then nothing, no reply. I heard absolutely nothing. And then I go to the site and there it is. To Mark's surprise and dismay, unlike virtually every other person who submitted reviews or news items to Ain't It Cool News, Harry failed to give Mark a code name. What you're going to hear next is Harry's introduction 
to Mark's review. Hey folks, Harry here with what will hopefully become a long-running column from an actual certified trained ninja. And this ninja's covert name is Mark Roma, and he happens to be a geek ninja and wants to write about martial arts films. So here we go with Shaolin from 2011. By introducing Mark this way to the hordes of talkbackers on the site, what Harry did was akin to shooting someone in the foot before shoving them in a water tank full of piranha. According to C. Robert Cargill, this was something that Harry did often. Harry would sometimes post a piece of yours and add context to the beginning that would recontextualize your piece. You know, he would start off with, hey, here's Mass Worm and uh, he's doing this and saying that and yada yada and create fodder for um, the narrative in the talkbacks, which would then, you know, you'd have people savaging you. Uh, that was always, that was never fun when he was just, cause he would just think it was hilarious. He would love to watch you squirm and have 300 comments ripping you to pieces um, and would enjoy it. And that's exactly what happened to Mark Roma. The talkbackers savaged him. Having Mark's actual name, they looked him up and found a website with pictures of him. They body shamed him and began making horrible comments about both him and his wife. In a panic, Mark says he asked Harry to remove the article, or at the very least, to turn off the comments. Harry's response, according to Mark, was as illuminating as it was cruel. And he was like, no, I don't ever turn the comments off, and I don't I don't uh, really kick people out. And I said, why? And he said, well, because everybody that comes in there, the, the, least, the, the less they like me, the more terrible they are, the more money I make off of it, because I make my money off of ads on the site. So he was like, every every pair of eyes, every person that's in there talking bad in the comments is making me money. So he's like, I don't I don't ever kick anybody out. So he was just like, just leave it. It'll be fine. He's like, you have to learn to have tougher skin, thicker skin. And I was like, oh, God. As simple and crudely produced as Ain't It Cool News was, through talkbacks, Harry Knowles manifested the prototype for a business model that would fuel latter, much more sophisticated platforms like Twitter and Reddit during the 2010s. And unlike Harry and Ain't It Cool News, these newer social media websites had the backing of venture capitalists, which enabled them to harness the toxic power of white male nerd rage into billion dollar corporations. But just like Harry did the mark, and especially the women who worked for Ain't It Cool News, these corporations strip people of their humanity, identity, and context, and leave all of us to fend for ourselves in a digital ocean of anger, resentment, and spite. We've shared comments from many people who refer to Harry Knowles as a bad writer and a poor journalist. But as early as 2011, Harry was ahead of the curve about one thing. He knew the one essential truth that would go on to dominate the world we live in today. Negativity fosters engagement. That's why he didn't block the talkbackers who doxed Mark Roma. That's why he also did nothing to curb the hateful and sexually charged comments directed at the women who worked for his site. It's also why he turned a blind eye to the racist and homophobic trolls who flooded his website with decades of horrible slurs, violent threats, and rape jokes. To be even more specific, Ain't It Cool News needed the traffic generated by the most hateful talkbackers. They made the website sentient alive and self-sustaining during the periods when, according to Steve Prokopi, the official updates from actual writers were becoming few and far between. 
we were posting less, so people were visiting us less and responding to us less and talking about us even less. There were definitely other sites at that point doing the news stuff much better than we were. As toxic, stressful, and at times unsafe of a work environment that Ain't it cool News created for its writers, the women especially, this was not the only labor issue at the website. What you have to realize about what contributors like Emily Von Steele endured from talkbackers for years is that it all happened while most of these writers worked for Ain't It Cool News completely without pay or compensation of any kind. I didn't have a huge problem with the idea of being, quote, paid in exposure. I wasn't looking at this as a job. It was just kind of thing I did on the side and it was something that I could hopefully use to hone my skills. Like many people, I had assumed that everyone who worked regularly for Ain't It Cool News was getting paid. This was a misconception that C. Robert Cargill says he exploited frequently during his times as a freelance writer. I mean, the upside to all of this was that everyone thought we were getting paid and everybody thought we were getting paid big money. And so I would go to these other places to contribute and they go, well, we can't pay you Ain't It Cool News money, but would you take $75 an article? And I'd be like, yeah, no, that's definitely not any cool money, but I'll take it. Um, and, uh, you know, I would have every once in a while film.com and reach out and go, again, uh, we can't pay any cool money, but would you take 225 bucks for a 500 word piece on Michael Jackson? And I was like, yeah, <laughs> yes, please. Uh, oh, <clears throat> yeah, no, that's, I can squeeze that in this week, yeah. The arrangement that Harry had with his writers was peculiar to say the least. Harry might have absorbed much of the popularity and media attention for this website, but the truth is almost none of that would have existed without his team. Of all the people who worked for the site, Harry included, I would go so far as to say that none of them created as much value as Drew McWeenie, and yet even Drew himself credits their success to the entire crew. I feel like the, the real truth of the site is um, the reason it worked is because of the cacophony, because of the assembly of voices. It's not because of me. It's not because of Eric. It's not because of Capone. It's not because of Massaworm. It's not because of Harry. It's not because of any one person. It was genuinely all of that energy being pushed in one direction and towards this thing. And all of us, I think genuinely had in our heads that what we were doing was motivated not by a desire to make money, not by a desire to build a business, or but by this fun we were having. During the heyday of Ain't It Cool News, the site's writers were having a lot of fun disrupting Hollywood and influencing major film productions. This goes a long way towards explaining why, in those early days, they were willing to work for nothing in terms of financial compensation. Cargill agrees with this. He adds that the visibility the site gave him, as well as the bonus perks he received for being part of Harry Knoll's team, were more than enough to keep him going during the five years he clerked at a video store while writing for Ain't It Cool News with no pay. Keep in mind that it wasn't until 2003 that the word blog became something in the mainstream. We weren't bloggers. We were film critics. You know, I was invited to write for the most widely read internet film site and I was being read by celebrities and filmmakers and and people all over the world, that was worth writing for free. I was able to get into sneak screenings. Harry would always have crazy stuff. One of the great things about the early days, you'd just get a call at 8.30 at night and be like, hey man, show up at the draft house at about 11.30. I'm going to show something crazy. And it would be a tape that a filmmaker sent him of their new film. Earlier in the week, it'd be like, hey, Friday night, midnight, draft house. Um... 
I've got this British filmmaker coming in. He's showing this. He wants us to see this movie of his he just made. Uh, get higher, baby. Uh, get higher, baby. Uh, get higher, girl. That British filmmaker Cargill was referring to was a then-unknown TV director named Edgar Wright. And the film he was secretly premiering at this private screening was his debut film, the romantic zombie comedy, or Zomcom, Shaun of the Dead. Rebecca Elliott was at this screening too. I still don't even understand how that happened and why I was there. <laughs> it was like Harry, Tim, Edgar Wright, me and my husband, a couple other friends that I can't even remember specifically who was there. And I want to say Robert Rodriguez was there. Like he showed up and we all watched Shaun of the Dead. And it was like, what the fuck was that? That was amazing. Things like that were happening left and right. So here's the question you have to ask yourself. Is this worth it? Would you write movie reviews, editorials, or news stories for free once or twice a week in exchange for opportunities like this, wherein you get to discover filmmakers like Edgar Wright and meet them in person, no less? If you were to ask me this question before I had a kid, personally, I would say yes. Yes, it would be worth it. But eventually, some writers at Ain't It Cool News, like Cargill, hit a line. This is the line where they noticed that Ain't It Cool News was financially successful, as far as movie blogs go, and they asked to be paid for their work. For five years, I wrote for free, and then I couldn't do the day job anymore. I couldn't punch a clock anymore. I needed to take a, a leap, and, um, and so I decided to take a leap and said, Harry, uh, I've got these other things starting up. I'm starting to get paid as a critic. I got to get paid or I got to go. And he's like, all right, we'll pay you. And I started getting paid. And from then on, I was paid month in, month out. Cargill's transition from unpaid writer to paid writer at Ain't It Cool News was extremely rare. Additionally, there were some writers who were supposed to be paid for their work, only to discover that this arrangement was not so cut and dry. This includes Alan Cerny. I, when I was working for him, they paid me for a few months and they didn't pay me at all. I should have the sense to leave then. I didn't. I stayed on for a few more years just because I was a part of that community. I felt like a part of everything. And to leave was kind of a betrayal, not of just of Harry, of that community, you know, of Eric and, and Steve. And, you know, when Drew was writing there and, 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 and other people, they were surprised to find out that I hadn't been paid for the longest time. This moral gray area that resulted from Ain't It Cool News policy of not paying most regular contributors for their work was never really addressed in a meaningful way. And from the mid to late 2000s, the problem only became worse. As we mentioned in a previous episode, the once meteoric influence and clout that Ain't It Cool News had in the industry of movie and entertainment reporting was being challenged by a new roster of competing movie news websites known as aggregators. Noting the downward trajectory of Ain't It Cool News, Eric Vespi knew it was time to step up or risk losing the website forever. The site wasn't getting updated for two or three days at a time. And I'm just like, let me do it. I'm here. I'm, I got nothing else to do. And uh, Harry said, sure. And then within a month of me doing that, th that went from me working for free, you know, for all these years that I'd been working for free to him going, all right, so you're on the payroll now. And I was one of the few people on payroll and, you know, and working full time at the site. And here's where the website's policy of not paying its writers crosses the line from gray area to indefensible. In the early days of Ain't It Cool News, with some exceptions, you had contributors who were obligated to do nothing more than write what they wanted, when they wanted. However, to compete with newer websites like Collider and Joe Blow, 
Suddenly ain't it cool news, largely unpaid workforce were conscripted into holding down shifts. Hours in their day-to-day -day lives where they had the unspoken obligation to be available and repost news stories that dropped on various movie news websites across the internet. Emily Von Steele was part of the second wave. She approached Ain't It Cool News as a fan of the legacy that Harry Knowles and his team built in the late 90s and early 2000s. Like many people in the second wave, she was so excited by the opportunity to work at the website that she never thought about trying to get paid. And, you know, I was just starting out. So the idea of, you know, contributing all of this work to a site that is making money off of it is something that's really kind of come into the spotlight more in the years since I was working there. Um, it's something that, you know, the industry as a whole has kind of had to tangle with and examine. Um, so I don't know that I would make the same decision today. During the height of Ain't It Cool News popularity, the Hollywood Reporter said the website was pulling in as much as $700,000 per year. All of which begs the question, is Ain't It Cool News generated this much revenue while paying the majority of its writers nothing? Where did that money go? Additionally, why did so many people have no problem working tirelessly and sometimes for years while not being paid? Former Ain't It Cool News writer Billy Donnelly, aka the infamous Billy the Kid, says that when he first approached the website to work for them in 2011, he was misled into thinking that this would not always be the case. And Roland was like, you know, I'll talk to Harry and we'll see what we're going to do and this, that, and the other. And then, you know, they came back and they were like, all right, well, you know, we're, we're interested in doing this. You know, it was, and it was always like with a but. It was like, well, we're interested in doing this, like, but. It was like, but like, we're still, you know, we're, you know, we have some things going on as far as like the site's money. So, you know, they're, they're like, well, you know, we're working on budget stuff, this, that, and the other. It's like, all right, well, we'll figure it out. Like, well, it'll get taken care of. So like I went in trusting <laughs> the, trusting that this would resolve itself. Unfortunately for Billy, the issue did not resolve itself. He would work full-time hours every week without pay for a year until he was abruptly fired by Harry Knowles via AOL Instant Messenger. Drew McWheeney says that what happened to young, aspiring writers like Billy Donnelly was common during the later era of Ain't It Cool News. Harry took full advantage of that kid. I, I know Harry ruined that kid in terms of how he used him, but he did that to everybody. I also want to point out that just moments ago, Billy mentioned a name that we haven't said very often on this show. And yet... This person held major power and financial benefit from Ain't It Cool News. Perhaps as much, if not more, than even Harry Knowles himself. I'm talking about Roland, or Roland Denoy, Harry's childhood friend. Most readers who followed Ain't It Cool News over the years have likely never heard of Roland before. We only mentioned Roland briefly in the second episode of this program. He was the person who first supplied Harry Knowles with an unlimited internet connection that Harry used to build his website. But Roland was more than that. After Ain't It Cool News became a success, Roland more or less installed himself as chief financial officer of the website, a position that Roland has miraculously held on to ever since. I've reached out to Roland multiple times via email, telephone, and text, and failed to get a response. So the only way to really personify Roland is through the words of the people who worked with him. This includes Drew McWheeney. As much as my frustrations uh, built with Harry, uh, they also really built with the guy that he built his business with, Roland Denoy, who is his kindergarten best friend and business partner and a thief and a liar. And Eric Vespi. 
you know, uh, l- listen, I played poker with Roland, you know, I I've known Roland as long as I've known Harry, but, uh, I mean, that, that dude is, is not the guy you want handling your finances, but perhaps the least flattering description of Roland comes from none other than Harry Knowles himself. In an excerpt from Harry's book, Ain't It Cool, Harry described Roland Denoy, who at the time had the nickname Roro, as the hardware man for the site, the person in charge of building the computers and databases. Roland was a big fan of the Anarchist Cookbook when he was a kid. He was always trying to build bombs and blow up animals, habits he thankfully left behind when he discovered movies. As kids, we were constantly getting busted in all sorts of Little Rascals-style shenanigans. He moved to New York with his father at the same time. I moved to my grandfather's ranch, and his father committed suicide at about the same time my mother died. Harry then goes on to describe Roland, who, again, is his childhood friend, by saying that he looks like the official police sketch of the second domestic terrorism suspect from the Oklahoma City bombings. Under a certain lens, a lot of this behavior that Harry recalled sounds terrible, especially the part about murdering animals for fun as a child. You might even think that Harry Knowles is perhaps joking or exaggerating in the way he describes his childhood friend. But of all the people whose interviews have been featured on this program, no one has spent more time with Roland than Paul Alvarado Dykstra, and he vouches for every single detail. I think he's got to spend every day over looking over his shoulder waiting to be arrested for, and not just for this, for other things. I mean, his hobby is cleaning handguns. Like for some reason we were meeting at his apartment or whatever, picking him up and he was there like cleaning his guns. Like that's how he relaxes. I was like, oh, he's, he's pretty cold blooded. In the early days of the site, Paul Alvarado Dykstra claims he joined Ain't It Cool News near the time that it launched to help Harry with the marketing and business sides of the company, specifically in that order. But when the site exploded in popularity, former contributor Jeremy Smith says that Roland came onto the scene and pushed Paul out of his position with Ain't It Cool News. You know, he wasn't the first financial advisor for the site. That was Paul Alvarado Dextra, and, and Paul was completely in over his head. Roland knew just enough to be able to make a mess. During the times he was required to interact or collaborate with Roland, Eric Vespi says there was limited transparency in terms of the business dealings of the site. The business stuff was so was frustratingly out of reach and vague. And every time I tried to ask for clarification on that from either Roland or Harry, I always got like a five minute long answer that didn't answer the question. It was this fog, this lack of transparency that led Eric Vespi to suspect that Roland may have exploited this ignorance regarding the business side of Ain't It Cool News for his own gain. He was also the guy completely in charge of the finances. So for all we know, he was taking 10% of every dollar coming in off the top. We'd have no idea. All the financial side of this was never told to us. And I think that there's the only reason to hide it from any of us is because they didn't they didn't want it, us to know how much they were making. You know, my feeling is that if there was any shady shit going on, and obviously there was, uh, you know, Roland's bank account was probably the beneficiary of it. Yeah. Paul Everardo Dykstra feels that outside of the allegations of sexual assault that would surface in 2017, the parasitic and even predatory relationship that Roland Denoy had with Harry Knowles, and by proxy, everyone who worked for Ain't It Cool News, was the core flaw that would ultimately destroy the website. I mean, uh, that relationship is um, a Shakespearean. <laughs> I think it frustrated everybody because Roland had Harry's number like no one else did. Harry had a blind spot that he just chose to trust Roland implicitly, even when 
everything was set on, when he was setting everything on fire and holding the match. The so-called fire that Paul referenced was a major issue that blew up in 2013. That's when the Hollywood Reporter magazine ran an article about how Ain't It Cool News had run afoul of the IRS. In this article, which declared Harry Knowles as the cash-strapped king of the nerds, Harry Knowles said he got a phone call from Roland Denoy. And it was during that phone call that Roland said, I really fucked up. It's my fault. That's when Roland shared that Ain't It Cool News owed the Internal Revenue Service about $300,000 in unpaid taxes. Like most people who work for Ain't It Cool News, Alan Cerny found out about his company's tax woes, not from Harry or Roland, but from the Hollywood Reporter article. I might have been the one responsible for him getting busted by the IRS because I file my taxes, <laughs> you know, and they would pay me in those, those few years they would pay me. They didn't send me a W-4 or whatever, but I knew how much I had gotten that year. And I knew the uh, the uh, well, the tax ID number of Ain't It Cool. So I just plugged it into my taxes because they had paid me. <laughs> it's like maybe somebody at the IRS looking, this guy's getting income from this agency and they're not reporting any income at all. You know, so maybe that was a red flag for somebody at the IRS. I don't know. Having no other job or source of income, Eric Vespi very much needed the money he made running Ain't It Cool News for Harry Knowles. However, even if Ain't It Cool News might have been in dire straits, financially speaking, Harry Knowles was doing just fine. Harry, I guess, has a, a, you know, a plot of land from his family that was helping him kind of weather a lot of financial storms because there's oil on that land. And, and so they get like a, a, a chunk of oil money. The family does every, every year. And uh, at the same time, the site was, you know, on death's door and I didn't get paid for three months in a row. And I just bought a house and I wasn't in a position to not get a paycheck. And I was really hurting. And Harry would be on the phone promising, uh, you know, up and down that I would be getting getting next month's paycheck on time. And then in one breath and then in another breath saying, oh, I just bought this $3,000, you know, ivory statue that, that uh, Errol Flynn once once owned or something. And like, because that in regular times, that would be something he would like, he, he would brag about and get to a cool like, holy shit from his fellow film fans. Like, that's really cool that Errol Flynn must own that. But he, he wouldn't have the the thought to think that that maybe it's not a good idea to bring up the fact that you're spending you know, $3,000 on a statue when you're not paying any of the people keeping your site afloat. With this major fiasco happening under the watch of Roland Denoy, everyone at the site, especially Paul Alvarado Dykstra, believed that Roland's time as CFO would come to an end. This, however, was not the case. I was like, finally, finally, this is going to break the spell. How could you trust Roland at any point now? This is just beyond our worst fears in terms of how egregiously malfeasant he, he has been as a CFO. Like this is just, it's ridiculous. But yet he just doubled down on, on Roland and, and who knows where things are since then. But one of, the, one of my great frustrations is that through gross negligence, they have dive-bombed the valuation of that company and that brand uh, in a way that I think is criminal. And my, my stake now is basically worth nothing. It's probably worth debt. I have no way of knowing. Noting what Roland did to Ain't Cool News and its employees, it's absurd that Harry Knowles would betray his own self-interest as he continued to stand by Roland. The only person who came close to making any of this seem even remotely logical was Eric Vespi. Uh, Harry, he, he's not a business guy. He doesn't know any of that shit. And I think that he was scared to try to find somebody else. 
and just like went with the devil you know that would be my guess it's a it's a it's a combination of being scared and lazy and i think that a lot of what you can place at harry's feet is laziness in a lot of ways 2008 was a pivotal moment for internet movie geek culture a summer blockbuster movie season bookended by two comic book films it began with the early May release of Iron Man, the film that would launch the Marvel Cinematic Universe. In terms of future box office grosses, no film would have as great or as lasting an impact on cinema culture in this new millennium than Iron Man. It's also worth noting that most critics liked Iron Man. And yet the true highlight for internet movie geek culture in 2008 was the release of that summer's other big comic book movie, which critics loved. Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight. But I know the truth. There's no going back. You've changed things. Forever. Then why do you want to kill me? <laughs> I don't want to kill you. What would I do without you? The second film in Nolan's Batman trilogy, The Dark Knight would gross $1 billion worldwide and score heaps of critical praise. And much of this praise would be directed at the late Heath Ledger's portrayal of comic book supervillain, The Joker. Speaking of Heath Ledger, the actor would get a posthumous Oscar for his work on the film. The movie would also score another win for best sound editing. Yet on top of the movie's box office successes, awards, and many accolades, on a macro level, I would posit that the film might very well be the greatest achievement in the war that Harry Knowles launched against popular culture. What I mean by that is that in 1997, Harry Knowles rose to prominence for bashing Joel Schumacher's Batman and Robin. And one of the biggest reasons that Harry Knowles bashed that film was for not taking the sequential legend of the Cape Crusader seriously. Eleven years later, Warner Brothers acquiesced. Long gone were Schumacher's neon lights, campy tone, and nipples molded onto the bat suits. Instead, Nolan created a film so grounded in reality and desaturated of color, there are times when it feels almost clinical. And despite whatever criticisms people might have of the film today, there is one thing that no one can deny. The movie takes both the characters and lore of Batman seriously. Maybe even too seriously. And because of The Dark Knight's massive success, future iterations of Batman in motion pictures would go on to try and outdo the film in this regard. Subsequent Batman films amplified the darkness and nihilism of Nolan's trilogy. Zack Snyder's Justice League films feature Batman murdering criminals via reckless and sometimes even deliberate action, while branding other crooks with a bat-shaped cattle iron he wears on his fist. Tell me. Do you bleed? And in 2022, we also got the three-hour epic, The Batman, which was directed and co-written by Matt Reeves. This newest Batman film is notable in that the main villain, the Riddler, played by Paul Dano, is an alt-right social media influencer. Based on the real-life Zodiac killer, this muted, more unhinged version of the Riddler operates inside the anonymous comment section of a website like 4chan or Reddit. It's time for the lies to finally end. False promises of renewal. Change! We've spent our lives in this wretched place suffering! Wondering why us? 
Now they will spend their last moments wondering, And this is purely speculation on my part, but it wouldn't surprise me to learn that this version of the Riddler grew up spending huge chunks of his youth talking shit about movies in the talkback section of Ain't It Cool News. Speaking of Ain't It Cool News... You and me, we've been at war since before either of us even existed. You try killing my mother, Sarah Connor. You're listening to a clip from Terminator Salvation. Terminator Salvation is largely forgettable, known more for a behind-the-scenes meltdown by its star, Christian Bale, than for anything on screen. I want to fucking kick your fucking ass. You know, shut up for a second, all right? I'm going to go. Do you want me to go fucking trash your lights? Do you want me to fucking trash your Terminator Salvation was also released in 2009. The reason I bring the movie up at all is because in 2008, Terminator Salvation would mark the final time that both Ain't It Cool News and Drew McWeenie would impact the production of a major motion picture. I think screenplay-wise, there are a number of places where, as we talked about scripts and development, we had both positive and negative effects on things. I will always be the one who is not intentionally, but I'm always going to be the guy that fucked up the ending of Terminator Salvation. Unlike The Dark Knight, where the impact by Harry Knowles and Ain't It Cool News is largely hypothetical on my part, the link between the website's actions and the version of Terminator Salvation that was released in theaters is verifiable. On June 2nd, 2008, right between the release dates of Iron Man and The Dark Knight, Drew McQueenie posted an article on Ain't It Cool News that featured a spoiler on the fourth Terminator film that was sent to him from an anonymous spy. You know, that was supposed to end with John Connor dying and them taking the robot body, the Terminator, and putting it into John Connor's skin so that he comes out at the end and says, I'm John Connor, and we know it's a robot moving forward. That was the giant twist that they had built into that script, and I wrote about it. And I was like, you're not really going to do that, are you? You guys are crazy if you do that. If anything from the original script of Terminator Salvation seemed crazy, according to its credited co-writer Michael Ferris, it's largely because he had zero belief that anyone would ever get the chance to see it. First of all, when we wrote Salvation, we didn't think anyone was going to make it. We, we thought they were just sort of handing us this, this free money gig, you know. For, and so we wrote it thinking, no one's going to shoot this. It's too expensive. It's too crazy and over the top. So we'll just have fun with it. And then well, they did. So that was the good news. The bad news was the reason we had for writing the movie this time was that we thought John Connor should die. It just seemed like, okay, everyone keeps saying John Connor is the indestructible savior of mankind. Well, what if we kill him? What, what are the implications of that? According to Ferris, when he and his creative partner, John Brancato, turned in their script, it would get rewrites by no less than 14 other writers. He also confirms that when the film's director, Joseph McGinty Nickel, AKA McGee, saw the leaked ending for his film blasted on Ain't It Cool News, he ordered another rewrite of the finale. So I knew that the script had leaked online and the ending had leaked online and that uh, McGee was very upset about it and so he wanted to change the ending to preserve some kind of new surprise. And you know, I mean, I've heard lots of directors have done that in the past. It's, it's, it's annoying, but I think, I think it's giving too much power, honestly, to the internet to say that they are now in control of how these movies turn out. I don't mind being rewritten. We always get rewritten, but they should have stuck with the ending. And cause I, I just don't think the ending they shot makes sense. What's ironic about this whole ordeal is that when Drew McQueenie first started working for Ain't It Cool News, 
He did so with the goal of taking on the National Research Group and Joe Farrell for the way they meddled with the work of screenwriters and directors via test screenings. And as Drew himself now readily admits, in just over 10 years of working for Ain't It Cool, here he was basically doing the same thing with Terminator Salvation. Honestly, probably should have done it. They probably should have just gone for it because at least we'd remember it. At least we'd still be arguing about that ending as opposed to, can you tell me how Terminator Salvation ends? I can't. No, nobody can. To this day, fans of the Terminator films, and they're out there, continue to take Drew to task for publicly leaking the original ending of this film. And that's the thing is there were times where I may have reacted a certain way and they flinched or they pulled back or whatever. And I wasn't always right. I certainly made some bad calls. I certainly uh, lost my mind on things that then either I saw play out and I'm like, oh, they were right in the first place. Or, you know, I'm like, oh, they they probably shouldn't have listened to me. Like that's that's a crazy change they made. There are both. There are cases where I think we helped and cases where I think we definitely hurt. But the reason this would be the last time Drew would have as big of an impact on a major studio film in development is because of a plot twist that would happen in real life. Drew McQueenie left Ain't It Cool News. His announcement was abrupt and kind of strange. Just a tag at the very end of the review Drew wrote for the David Fincher film The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. There was no period of notice. No pomp or circumstance as there was with virtually everything that happened at Ain't It Cool News. There wasn't even an official statement from Harry or anyone else at the site thanking Drew for all of his hard work. Drew simply posted his review and ended by saying that he would be working for a brand new movie and entertainment news site called HitFix.com. Even former Ain't It Cool News writer Alan Cerny remembers being surprised by this announcement. And when I read that, I was like, my jaw dropped. I was, I was crazy uh, because I was sad to see him go. I know, I, but at the time, I thought, well, he's going on to better money. He lives in Hollywood. That rent isn't free, and he, maybe he's going on to better money. See, Robert Cargill adds that behind the scenes, the official word from Harry was that Drew received such a lucrative job offer, he simply could not afford to pass it up. He got a great fucking offer. Like he he had somebody come into him with a job where I mean the thing was is Harry told me, you know, he's like, Yeah, Drew's leaving, but the door's always open for him. He can always come back. The money they were offering him was something ain't it cool couldn't. And it was stupid money. And he's like, you know, that money will probably dry up. So when that money dries up, please come back. And that was that was how we were all told uh, uh that went down. But when I asked Drew about it today, he claims the true reason he left was something that almost no one at Ain't It Cool News, including many of the writers, had ever heard of before. When I left the site in 2009, I left under very bad terms. It was not a good parting. According to Drew, once he became a permanent and valuable part of the Ain't It Cool News team, he struck an agreement with Harry that included both a regular salary as well as an ownership stake in the website. There was a formal salary agreement. There was supposed to be partial salary, partial ownership of the site uh about a year after we did that he went behind my back with roland denoy and he reorganized the entire site uh refiled rebuilt the corporate structure and never told me and so for the last three years four years i was working at the site i was under the impression that i had an ownership stake did not um and he took great advantage of that asked me to forego salary at times asking me to when there were times that the server needed things, asked me to take less money. There were a lot of games that went on. Um, 
but his core group never once didn't get paid. The most challenging aspect to these assertions from Drew is that there are almost no witnesses or corroborating evidence. Drew claims the emails he exchanged with Harry and Roland Denoy were lost when Drew stopped being Moriarty for Ain't It Cool News and switched to a new email address. He also has no copies of the alleged contracts or legal documents that he could share with me. And having examined four different iterations of articles of incorporation bearing variations of the Ain't It Cool brand, three of which were filed in the state of Texas, one of which in the state of Delaware, I can verify that Drew's name appears nowhere on these documents. I spoke to Paul Alvarado Dykstra, who again was the former chief operating officer and a legal co-owner of Ain't It Cool News. Paul's name appears on all versions of the Articles of Incorporation pertaining to the website. He says he was unaware of any offers or deals that would have made Drew McWheeney a partial owner of Ain't It Cool News. But Paul went on to add that not being aware of a potential ownership stake offered by Harry to Drew doesn't mean the conversation never happened behind his back. The reason being, Harry was constantly working the Austin and Los Angeles crew of writers and collaborators against each other. There was a lot of institutionalized talking behind other people's backs that was not healthy. And I think that Harry kind of thrived on that, on kind of stirring that pot in kind of a little of his own little reality show where he kind of was playing people off of each other. And it's a little sick, honestly. I think that if, if there had been, <laughs> if he'd ever taken an HR class or, <laughs> I mean, not that Brene Brown existed as a thing back then, but like, I'm like, God, imagine if he'd ever gone to one of her talks, how things could have been different, how that company culture could have actually had a company culture that was conducive and collaborative and nurturing instead of antagonistic and splinter celly and balkanized. Perhaps this is why the only person I interviewed who had any knowledge of this partial ownership arrangement that Drew claims he had with Harry was fellow Los Angeles collaborator Jeremy Smith, a.k.a. Mr. Beeks. Harry told Drew that, you know, he would, I mean, he'd be taken care of when the, when the site, if the site got sold, you know, when, when the big money finally came in, you know, Drew was going to uh, get a windfall because he had been so integral to the continued development and sustaining of the site. In my time developing the story of Drew McWheeney and his tenure with Ain't It Cool News, one allegation that has come up repeatedly from Drew's critics is that he exploited his relationship with Harry Knowles and the website for his own gain. Danny Glover's the, I mean, Danny echoes the sentiment. In some odd way, he was sort of milking Knowles for everything that he could, knowing eventually he was going to throw him under the bus or th throw his chair under the bus, however you want to say it. But, you know, he, he was taking him for a ride. I, I, I truly believe that Drew was a, a, a business savvy hound dog. Sure, there's definitely some evidence that points to this being the case. The best example would have to be the review that Harry wrote for Drew's script, Amusements. This is the same review wherein the webmaster failed to disclose to the site's readers that Drew and Moriarty were the same person. At the same time, you could argue that Drew gave up a lot for Ain't It Cool News. 
he devoted years of sweat equity. And as we demonstrated in the previous episode, Drew sacrificed his screenwriting career via Scorched Earth editorials in what now seems like a naive and even foolhardy belief in the mission of this movie news website. And if Drew is to be believed, his ultimate reward for these sacrifices that he made was complete and total betrayal. I had just found out that he had lied to me about the incorporation, that I had no stake in the site, that I was walking away with nothing that he and Roland were going to renege on a whole series of promises that had been made, financial and otherwise. And I just wanted to be done with it. I was like, fine, I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to burn you down in public, but I'm done. And you owe me two things. I can reprint anything I want, anywhere I want forever. And you can't do anything about it. And you're going to put that in print. You're going to make sure I have a contract that says that, that I will keep. And B, um, you need to keep my stuff online. Uh, don't take it down. And that's it. And... Um, and I walked away and I walked away with nothing. It was infuriating because I really felt like I had been as much a part of the building of that site, as much of the identity of that site as he had. Um, but I also walked away wanting the clean break because I was starting to hear things that disturbed me about Harry. We will touch on the last thing Drew said in just a moment. But for now, I will say that while I can't verify Drew's story in any meaningful way, I can vouch for one thing. He was more than integral to the success and overall identity of Ain't It Cool News. Just as much as site creator Harry Knowles, if not more so. Jeremy Smith had hoped to explore this complex dynamic between Harry Knowles and Drew in a documentary feature film he was planning to produce before scrapping that project altogether. Drew got screwed, man. And he, uh, he definitely had, he should have left a long time before he did. It reminded me of Eduardo Saverin in The Social Network. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that comparison holds some water. And that, honestly, when we were talking about the documentary, that was kind of the dynamic we were thinking of. And I was like, well, I was like, but, you know, I was like, you know, I don't think Harry's as bad as Mark Zuckerberg. It was insanely stupid of me not to have my own lawyers look over all these. In, in, in all honesty, I thought they were my lawyers. I was your only friend. Yet one friend. And so it goes. With absolutely no fanfare or goodbyes, Drew McWeenie, a major force within the world of Ain't It Cool News, had left the website for good. He wasn't the only one. With the emergence of aggregators, combined with the explosion of social media, fewer and fewer people were now visiting Ain't It Cool News. I myself went from visiting the site multiple times each day, to weekly, and then barely more than once a month if that. I wasn't alone. By January of 2009, the website would track around 20,000 unique visitors per month. This brings us back to where the episode began. Even after Drew's departure, as well as the exit of many of the site's daily readers, Harry Knowles and Guillermo del Toro were on stage at the Paramount Theater in 2011 to celebrate the 15th anniversary of Ain't It Cool News? Uh, I mean, Ain't It Cool. It's a great question because Ain't It. The movie they were about to play was a secret, and because of Harry's past successes, much of the audience had every belief and expectation that Harry would be playing that year's new Marvel films, Thor, or specifically Captain America the First Avenger. Hey! Let's hear it for Captain America! 
Alan Cerny was sitting in the audience at the time and remembers the expectation from the crowd. Harry's clout at the time was on the decline. Uh, I mean, I couldn't. I mean, I couldn't imagine he would have gotten a, a major release at that time. I mean, but I mean, Harry was known to be able to procure some stuff that was, you know, real, you know, hard to find. The 1600-seat theater was nearly full of moviegoers, many of whom were expecting to see a genetically enhanced Chris Evans bashing Nazis in the face. What they got instead was this. I have been witness to something. Something of consequence to you. To me. A 35mm screening of director Matthew Robbins' cult dark fantasy film, Dragon Slayer. Dragon Slayer might have had great reviews when it was released in 1981, but it was also a flop. And after its release, Dragon Slayer might have achieved cult status among movie geeks, including both Harry and Guillermo, but it was most certainly not Captain America. It's because of this that the audience was clearly displeased. Sensing that the mood from the audience in the Paramount Theater had soured, Harry Knowles got on the mic to try and rally the crowd. If you don't love it, you're not a fucking film geek. To which a large portion of the audience obviously said to themselves, Fine. We're not fucking film geeks. According to Alan Cerny, as Harry and Guillermo del Toro continued to introduce the film, a massive walkout ensued. When the movie started and it was announced what it was, I would say about two-thirds of the theater left. 1,500 seats. A lot of people. And so a lot of people did leave. He didn't fill it up or anything. I think it, it kind of people had gotten the idea that it was going to be a vintage, so some people stayed away, but it was still a fairly full theater. And when, you know, he announced that it was that movie, a lot of people did leave. This walkout was a real-life enactment of what was transpiring online. Harry Knowles and his army of movie geeks helped to terraform popular culture making it habitable for something like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, a superhero confection told across more than 20 different feature films, not only to exist, but to thrive. But in doing so, one thing he perhaps failed to anticipate is that in terms of movie-going experiences, this would soon be the only thing that most audiences would want. Nerd and geek culture had become the mainstream, as beloved by people who watched football at sports bars as it was by people who played Dungeons & Dragons. During its rapid shift into the mainstream, nerd culture was increasingly commodified, transformed into industries worth billions of dollars to the corporations that laid claim to its most valuable parts. And few people were interested in the relics of the same culture's pimple cream and basement dwelling past. This includes forgotten cult movies like Dragon Slayer and, yes, even people like Harry Knowles. Beyond that, during the 10 years when Harry was distracted by his pursuit of Hollywood dreams, the realities of the internet, where Harry first created his celebrity, had evolved in ways that he would never be able to catch up. From streaming videos and podcasts, to social media and search engine optimization. Sitting there on stage beside Guillermo del Toro with a rapidly declining audience, Harry Knowles was a person out of time. In both senses of the phrase. The only problem is, he didn't fully know that yet. One last note. That following July, 
Harry Knowles did manage to host a premiere screening of Captain America The First Avenger. Before the screening, there was a film buff from Austin, Texas, who for the purposes of this story, we will call Jessica. Jessica loved movies and wanted to attend the screening of Captain America. So she texted Harry Knowles, requesting if it would be possible to add her name to the guest list. Harry's response caught Jessica off guard. You can get in if you give me a kiss. This message was a textbook, open and shut case of sexual harassment that Jessica should not have had to experience in order to watch a movie. And because of a cultural shift that would take place more than half a decade later, we would discover that this particular instance of sexual harassment was not unique. We would also find that it was part of a systemic problem, a problem that was enabled and in some ways abetted by an entire community that was once manipulated and perhaps willing to turn a blind eye to the egregious sexual misconduct of Harry Knowles, among other individuals. This is a problem that could have and should have been addressed as early as 1999. And many now argue this community has still not addressed this problem in any meaningful way since these allegations were brought to light in 2017. The reason being, in today's social media enhanced world, Many people are beyond eager to look at accountability as a spear we can hurl at others who have been deemed as villains. At the same time, we are reluctant to look at the same accountability as a mirror. This includes myself, and we'll be talking about that here on the next episode of Download, The Rise and Fall of Harry Knowles and Ain't It Cool News. Seven of Download, The Rise and Fall of Harry Knowles and Ain't It Cool News, titled The Antisocial Network Part 2, was written, narrated, and edited by Joe Scott. It was executive produced by Christina Bell, with sound engineering by Eddie Garcia, production assistance by Reese Allen and Abrar Mubashar, as well as online production by Janessa Smith. It features Ben Jones as the voice of Harry Knowles, with a chorus of angry talkbackers played by AJ Schrader, John Chenoweth, Reed Pegram, and David DeCaro. Music credits include original theme music and other songs by Chester Endersby Guazda, as well as additional music by Bonnie Grace, Trevor Kowalski, Mimai, Mike Franklin, Megan Wofford, Kabi Costa, Lo5, Telmo Telmo, and Howard Harper Barnes. If you like this show, first off, I just want to say thank you. Second, let other people know that by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It's a huge help in terms of getting other listeners to find out about us. Download The Rise and Fall of Harry Knowles is produced by Mixtape Media. Make sure to visit our website at downloadpod.com. That's download with a W instead of an A. Pod is in podcast.com. There you can read show notes, ask a question, or even leave a message that can be played on the air. We'll be coming back in two weeks with a penultimate chapter in the story. So join us then to dial up, log on, and download.
file's done. Goodbye.